0: Hello and welcome to the Owl Wisdom podcast. I'm Geeta Sundaram from Goa, India, and I'm here to talk to you about all things business, politics, and culture. Thank you for joining me. This edition of the Owl Wisdom podcast is on preventing global economic doomsday. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Owl Wisdom podcast, where we shall discuss the global economy under the influence of COVID 19, how countries are doing, and whether we can hold off economic doomsday for very much longer. Well, I have to say that five months into the COVID 19 pandemic, the world is slowly coming to grips with the severity of the spread of the pandemic and its effect on our lives. We're also beginning to realize that governments matter, however uninvolved they might have been with the day-to-day running of the state. Sadly, it appears that most governments haven't quite been able to come to grips with the situation and many are still grappling with the issues. Unlike a financial crisis or a simple economic recession, the COVID-19-induced economic crisis is much more complex and is a tangle of several interconnected problems all coming to the fore at the same time. It is also unprecedented, so governments really don't have a reference to guide them in their policy-making, save for the Spanish flu in 1918-19. The Economist, in its March 26, 2020 edition, wrote an article titled The State in the Time of COVID-19, stating that governments will get larger during the COVID crisis, as if it were a dire warning, when the fact is that during a crisis, countries have only their governments to turn to. The 2008 financial crisis itself was a recent reminder of how governments had to bail out banks and large companies in order to set their derailed economies back on track. Indeed, many governments were criticized for either not doing enough by way of economic stimulus or for helping Deal Street but not Main Street, which represents the real economy. In the case of the COVID-19 pandemic, the arguments for government to step in and save their populations from disease, starvation, and loss of livelihood are even stronger. However, if we look at the response of even the rich, developed countries to the COVID-19 pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis, you'd have to say their efforts have been far from satisfactory. They have a public health crisis and an economic one to deal with at the same time, but they seem to somehow politicize it all. From brushing off the pandemic as a mild flu, to assuring people that all was well, from the announcements of lockdowns, to publicly disagreeing with their scientists, we have watched the entire panoply of ham-handed responses play out. The world has also gone from blaming China for the pandemic in the early days to praising China and some Far Eastern economies like South Korea, Taiwan and Singapore for having successfully checked its spread. Unfortunately, China and Singapore have both seen a rise in fresh cases, although it is said to be under control. On the economic front, it was central banks that came to the rescue first, in most countries while politicians were still arguing about the size and shape that the stimulus package should take. With interconnected global financial markets, the actions and announcements of central banks rippled through most of the world, helping to calm the markets, instill confidence and provide much needed liquidity to the financial system so that credit markets don't seize up. To that extent, one would have to say that central banks have done well to anticipate and prepare their economies against the dangers lurking ahead. In an economic sense, they are the first responders. From an expanded US$186 billion stimulus by the Bank of Japan to a €750 billion bond buying program by the ECB. Boe's 797 billion U.S. dollar program to the largest of them all, the U.S. Federal Reserve's 2.3 trillion U.S. dollars. These are said to be much larger monetary stimulus than was announced in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. What's more, the ECB announced a second tranche of additional bond purchases of 600 billion euros at the beginning of June, taking its total monetary stimulus to help Eurozone countries fight Covid to 1.35 billion euros. As expected, the immediate effect of all the stimulus was most visible in the capital markets, if in the early days of covid investors were piling into u.s bonds seen as a safe haven from around the end of march 2020 stock markets across the world have rebounded rather well from their lows led by the u.s stock markets the nasdaq in particular has done really well wiping out its covid losses you can see the covid impact here as well since technology healthcare and biotech businesses are expected to perform well through and even after COVID, these sectors were the best performing and that's why Nasdaq recovered the fastest. News reports cite analysts and brokers saying that optimism over vaccine development and reopening of the economy are behind the rebound, but I think it's also all the liquidity in the markets. If they're not going into stocks, they're going into emerging market bonds. I noticed the 10-year bond deals in India falling even lower in the last week of May and early June 2020. But what about the real economy and people for whom the stimulus is intended? And what have governments done so far to contain the crisis? We'll look at that after a little breather. See you soon. You're listening to the Our Wisdom podcast on preventing global economic doomsday. In the next section, we'll discuss what governments are doing in this regard. Welcome back. We're discussing the global economy under COVID-19 and what it will take to ward off economic doomsday. In this section, we'll discuss what governments around the world are doing to keep their economies running after mild to severe lockdowns were announced in several countries. In China, where the pandemic began, the government has provided enough stimulus by way of lending facilities, and according to news reports from Reuters, by March 2020, loans had surged to US dollars as the stimulus made its way through the system. Corporate loans doubled and household loans, especially mortgages, had rebounded, which is all a positive sign of recovery in the Chinese economy. The Economist in its 22nd May issue says that central and local governments in China have collectively issued 8.5 trillion yuan worth of new bonds that is 1.2 billion u- uh, trillion US dollars in 2020 nearly twice that of last year and about 8% of GDP Meanwhile in the US and UK governments have been announcing unemployment benefits aid to the poor, economic packages for small businesses, and finally, a plan to help businesses in industries particularly hard hit by the COVID-19 crisis, such as airlines, automobiles, hospitality and travel. Unfortunately in the US, not enough has been done to protect jobs, so unemployment claims and the numbers of unemployed have both soared in recent weeks. The risks of the gig economy are becoming only too clear as it takes a toll on temporary workers and independent service providers what's more the u.s has a new crisis to deal with as the country is convulsed by massive protest rallies in support of an unarmed african-american man who was killed by a policeman only the latest in a series of such racist attacks on the black community in recent years The protests have also led to arson, looting and rioting in many places, all of which will no doubt hamper economic activity. Trump's much-touted reopening of the US economy after lockdown has ended in widespread civil unrest across the country and he threatens to respond by sending in the military. In the UK and in Europe, things are only slightly better because workers who have been furloughed still have some chances of getting back to their jobs, Besides, the unemployment benefits announced by the UK Chancellor have been acknowledged as among the most gracious Britain has ever seen. In continental Europe, workers enjoy a little more protection, as I noted in one of my previous blog posts, and that can only be a welcome sign. Both Europe and Japan have just scaled up their stimulus packages in a second tranche to the tune of 750 billion euros and 1.1 trillion US dollars, respectively. We are still awaiting details of these second stimulus packages, but it's quite clear that government stimulus packages so far have for the most part been of two kinds – relief to the unemployed and furloughed, and relief easier credit to businesses. However, we know that demand for credit, especially from the worst affected small and medium businesses, is likely to be low during the lockdown, and even through the early stages of reopening the economy, will not be met with easy lending by banks. Larger companies will find it easier to raise money in the debt and equity markets, as well as through bank loans. In India, for example, RBI reports that in March and April 2020, credit growth had decelerated by as much as 30-50% to over the same period last year, in sectors such as overall non-food credit and agriculture. Credit growth to industry has decelerated by as much as 80%, while that to the services sector by around 25-30%. to Personal loan growth seems to be the most resilient at 12.1% in April 2020, suggesting a 10-15% to 15% slowing down year-on-year, year. but it too has decelerated sequentially from 15% in March 2020, which means there is worse to come. There is a third equally important part of government's relief package and that should be to boost consumption demand. Because while it is true that the COVID-19 pandemic first struck global supply chains largely as a result of originating in China and then more broadly the supply side thanks to lockdowns in most places, the more enduring impact will be felt in slackened demand across economies which means putting more money in the hands of the poor and vulnerable classes, people who have a genuine need to consume essentials especially. In India, poor and migrant labor have been the worst affected by the lockdowns, imposed and between losing their jobs and livelihood in towns and cities and reaching their villages, they are caught in a terrible bind. Their plight worsens rural unemployment and demand and at the same time will cause labor shortages in cities just as they are ready to resume business. This might put upward pressure on wages in cities and might even discourage investment or reopening of businesses, especially small businesses who rely on informal workers. What does this tell us about how economies should plan for recovery? Let's discuss that after this tiny break. You're listening to the Our Wisdom Podcast on preventing global economic doomsday. Coming up, how economies can recover from the crisis. Given that the economic crisis brought on by Covid is both a supply and a demand problem, governments should make sure that credit flows freely to businesses and to households, as well as put money in the hands of the economically weaker sections of society. Further, they should do their best to encourage sectors of the economy that are not travel and hospitality related. Economies that are too dependent on tourism will be the worst affected. So expect even more economic pain in the southern European economies that are still reeling from the Euro crisis of 2012. While airlines are resuming flights as lockdowns are eased, it will be a while before people take to the skies like before. Only essential business travel will take place, I would imagine, and that too at much lower levels than before. Instead, other public transport ferrying millions of commuters every day should restart, but with social distancing rules clearly in place. Hard to expect in populous countries like India and China, especially in our crowded cities, but it is essential to strive for this as people's lives depend on it. The other very important aspect of economic recovery is keeping trade channels and supply chains open and functioning. I notice an increasing protectionist rhetoric in several countries which is worrying. As it is, global trade has plummeted to new lows thanks to COVID-19. The Economist reports that global trade is down by a third already, and with countries so connected and dependent on each other, we can't allow protectionism to come in the way of economic recovery. Many economies have contracted already in the first quarter of the calendar year, and the second quarter is expected to be extremely damaging for most countries. In such a context, I find that the new US-China tensions are most unhelpful. China's swift economic recovery, which seems possible and I believe it will recover fastest from this crisis, should be seen as a welcome sign by the rest of the world. Both US and China as the largest economies in the world need to call an end to their acrimony as it affects every other country trading and doing business with them. The best way for governments to manage this crisis is to focus on their domestic economies while also boosting trade. As it is, the two-year-long US-China trade war has already done enough damage to world trade, according to the same article in The Economist. It had also deeply slowed European economies since Trump had waged a trade war against Europe as well. In the midst of a public health crisis, when countries are all engaged in finding a vaccine for COVID-19 and are dependent on each other for a wide range of medical supplies, among many other traded goods, it is imperative that trade and international cooperation are kept open. Central governments need to also manage their relationships with local and provincial governments, to whom most of the task of managing the health crisis has been left. What is most needed, therefore, from governments is leadership and a clear plan to manage the crisis. It requires lateral thinking, clear prioritization, and an atmosphere of domestic as well as international cooperation and dialogue. President Trump apparently wanted world leaders to travel to Washington for a G7 summit this uh, summer, but his invitation was declined by many who couldn't see much sense in leaving their countries in the midst of a raging pandemic. I was thinking, that in light of the current global scenario in terms of keeping trade and movement of goods and people open, perhaps what is needed right now is a special meeting of the G20 with nothing but COVID-19 on the agenda. Needless to add, it would be a virtual meeting via video conferencing and it might yet be G20's finest moment in an hour of need. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Owl Wisdom Podcast. Until next month, this is Geeta Sundaram signing off for now. Stay safe and well, wherever you might be. For more owl wisdom, read my blog peripateticperch.com and follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter.